So, Nicolas Bornoz is of Capitalink again, and I'm delighted to welcome you to another uh, top-level panel. This panel is on the LNG sector. LNG has been getting a lot of attention, uh, especially recently. Uh, the market seems to be, again, quite strong, and uh, we and, and the prospects are very positive. So we have with us uh, a great panel. Uh, we are welcoming Randy Givens from Jefferies, who just came back from Sudan. We were just talking about uh, Randy's uh, commitment to giving back and the wonderful work he did in Sudan, uh, repairing uh, water wells. Uh, bravo, Randy, and uh, always great to have you uh, with us. Uh, Randy is going to introduce our panelists. I would like only to say thank you uh, to Carl Frederick, Richard, Paolo, and Oystein for being with us today and for supporting the Capital Link forums all the time. So, Randy, the floor is yours. Excellent. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks for that, Nicholas. As Nicholas said, my name is Randy Givens, uh, head of the Maritime Shipping Equity Research Team here at Jefferies. So today we have a, a star-studded panel uh, with four of the top executives in, in one of the hottest and I guess coldest shipping sectors in the world, and that is LNG carriers. So on the panel today, we have uh, Mr. Oystein Kalaklev, CEO of Flex LNG, Paolo Anoisi, CEO of Gaslog Partners, Carl Frederick Stavo, CEO of Golar LNG, and Richard Gilmore, Executive Vice President of Moran Gas Maritime. So we'll start with a little background information, uh, obviously discuss some of these LNG drivers uh, that's really pushing up rates and LNG prices for that matter, and then have a few companies for each of um, the, the company, a few questions for each of the companies on the panel. So let's start here. You know, the price of LNG has certainly remained very elevated in recent months. Just this week, um, we're seeing uh, massive blowouts even in Asia, Europe, a uh, huge energy kind of crisis in, in those regions. So I guess, Carl, we'll start with you. What is kind of causing a lot of this? What is the effect specifically on LNG shipping? Uh, and how long do you think this really lasts? Now, first and foremost, we see a general drive towards increasing demand for LNG. We see that across uh, the board, uh, in particular now driven by Asia and Europe. Uh, not only are we seeing increasing demand, we're seeing uh, record low um, storage numbers coming into winter. And we think what's driving this uh, is obviously the fact that people are trying to store up for the winter months on the back of uh, increased demand. How long it can last? Uh, obviously, uh, it's extremely strong now. We do not think that the current um, prices are sustainable in the long run. Just comparing energy parity of LNG today versus, for example, oil and coal, we're already at a very significant premium. Some of the premium is probably warranted by the environmental uh, benefits of LNG over coal and oil. Uh, but yet we, we think that current prices will need to come down over time. What we are increasingly confident about is that the price for LNG the next 10 years will be significantly higher than the previous 10 years on the back of uh, increasing demand and uh, less liquefaction investments having been made uh, over the course of the last four or five years. So we remain very encouraged uh, by uh, the backdrop here. And at the end of the day, price volatility is what's driving the attraction for the LNG carriers. And generally higher prices, it's what's driving the demand for our FLNG technology. So we, we like what we see. Yep, uh, understandably so. So yeah, with that, LNG prices are around $35 per MMBTU in Asia, around $30 or so um, in Europe. So Paolo, have you seen some traders maybe stepping in to take advantage of that geographical pricing arbitrage, buying in Europe, selling in Asia? Uh, I know that was obviously a, a big driver of the rate spike uh, back in January. Sure. Thanks, Randy. Yeah, the, I think you know, some of the dynamics are really the one that, that Carl mentioned before. I think we've seen in this market a little bit of everything. We, we still see the major arbitrage is still from the U.S., you know, into the Far East with Europe, you know, trading and trying to, you know, pay uh, a difference in the arbitrage to secure some of the cargoes. We've seen, you know, maybe not now, but back in the past two months, even arbitrage between different countries in Europe and actually cargo being loaded and, and, and discharged even at the same terminal, which is something that we, we really haven't seen before. And we've seen, as you mentioned, you know, some uh, relatively little arbitrage from uh, moving from Europe into Asia. 
But what the, the other thing that we've also seen is there has been an important coverage that has happened in some of the players and, and some of the majors in trying to secure tonnage to face all the arbitrages, you know, straight from the early days of summer into now. Something that we haven't seen last year and something that we believe with the developments that are coming up now, you know, probably we will see also next year. So it's a tight shipping market where, you know, the arbitrage is, is healthy as, uh, as, uh, for, for shipping in general. But the dynamics, again, what Carl, Carl mentioned before, in the overall, you know, relative pricing of energy versus the other energy sources is something to watch for. Got it. Okay. And then with that, you know, speaking of LNG inventories, that has certainly been seasonally low, and that's throughout Asia, throughout Europe. Um, is that still the case now? And if so, how quickly can these inventories be restocked? Um, uh, Oystein, I know you're a European. What's going on over there? Is there not enough pipe gas? Is there not enough gas from the Groningen gas field? What's going on with inventories over there? So, of course, we are in Europe. We, we are not getting above 80% uh, storage level and the last two years, you know, we have had full inventories going into the winter. So, uh, so of course, we have been pointing out this since December last year, actually, that uh, inventories were plummeting because of the cold snap in, in Asia. And all the cargos went into Asia in, in the first half of the year. And basically, Europe was starved off uh, from, from, from gas. And, uh, and we are still coping with that problem now because the summer has been a lot uh, less wind. Than, uh, than in the past. So uh, actually, you know, there's a, a lot of different reasons why, why we are in this, this situation. We had this gas seminar two weeks ago and we actually pointed out 10 reasons why, why the market is in this way. And, and, and of course, inventories will stay low. Uh, I think the, the future prices for gas uh, reflects this very well because if you look at the, the gas prices now, and I saw that uh, Carl Frederick and Gola, they fixed some uh, TTF for for next, uh, next winter, uh, Q1, 22, I believe it was. So yep. you, you see that the prices are elevated, $35, $40 area. It's basically $200 per barrel of oil equivalent. So it's extremely high prices, but prices will stay high uh, all the way into Q1 next year. And prices are also high summer market next year because it's going to be a summer rally for restocking because Europe will go out of this winter with just empty storage levels. So, so there will be that supportive of the freight market during the summer, also supportive of the gas prices. And then actually you see gas prices picking up again late in 22 because of the winter. So, so we are probably in an environment where gas prices will stay elevated until at least summer of 2023 when they are normalizing. And when they are normalizing, then we are talking like $10 per million BTU, which is still pretty, pretty good prices. Yep, no, I, I see that for sure. Now turning to you, Richard. As we mentioned, there's always some extreme seasonality uh, within LNG. Uh, obviously, it peaks in October to January, usually wanes in the shoulder season. Then you get another little rally in the summer, then another kind of pullback in the fall. So is there anything that the shipping industry can do to maybe offset some of that intense seasonality and the seasonality and rates uh, for the LNG ships? With that, are, are maybe the variable rate charters really going to replace kind of fixed charters going forward? I think that, you know, there's a couple of different pieces to this. The, um, certainly the, the seasonality has been there. Um, whether it continues this next year is gonna be an interesting question, you know, based on, on the demand that we're seeing right now on LNG side. So um, that's a question mark. We'll just leave that to the side. Um, but I, I think, you know, as far as um, what the shipping companies are doing, in a sense, we're somewhat reactive. So it's really what the charters are gonna be doing. A number of them, as has already been pointed out, um, this late this summer and, and into the fall, have actually gone out for multi-year charters um, and trying to shift away from the spot exposure and trying to get away from having to pay very high rates during the winter time. So this is going to help to moderate a certain extent um, the rates over the next year. Um, there will be vessels coming open. Some of the uh, TFTE vessels that have been charted out will be coming back in, in uh, 2022. So, so there will be vessels available and there will be some drop in rates probably with the seasonal, but I, I, I think it's going to be actually a pretty firm year going forward. Um, and uh, based on the fact that uh, LNG is, is in demand and, uh, and so it, it'll support the rates that, um, that will be there to carry the cargos. 
Okay, that's fair. So yeah, so we looked at the next few months and even the next year maybe, but let's look at the next few years, right? As the industry prepares for IMO 2030, LNG as a transition fuel is certainly winning out, right? You've seen many dual fuel container ships, tankers, uh, dry bulk vessels being ordered. So back to you, Carl, how will this kind of increase demand for LNG as a bunker fuel impact global LNG demand and specifically the LNG shipping business? Yeah. Okay, so that's a lot of questions into one, but um, a lot of people talk about LNG as a transition fuel and think about 2030 as sort of between now and 2030. We think it's significantly longer than that. First and foremost, all of the ships that you refer to has a design life of 25 to 30 years, but I think we need to look at sort of the, the overall energy mix in the world today to understand uh, LNG's role. So today, the world consumes around 260 million barrels of oil equivalent in, in energy demand. 60% of that is today serviced by oil and coal. If you take the likes of BP, they believe that world energy demand will increase by 8%, so from 260 to 280 million barrels of oil equivalent. In the same time period, they're optimistically believing that oil and coal will be reduced from 60 to 49% of the energy mix. So what's going to offset that? Well, of course, it's renewables with the spurge of investments going into that, um, that field. But at the end of the day, as we have tried to touch upon, and as Einstein mentioned as well, renewables are dependent on there actually being wind, actually being sun or rain for, for hydro. What you need is a base load backup capacity. Batteries are not a sufficient solution. They're not efficient enough today. So the most efficient backstop you can have for base load demand is LNG fueled or gas fired power plants. That's because they are the most flexible in turning on and off. Uh, they are out of the alternatives, the by a mile most environmentally efficient and gas is still an abundant resource. So we believe that LNG will play an increasingly important role together with renewables in a drive towards a low, lower carbon future. We do not think that that is between uh, an, sort of an intermediate between now and 2030. We think it has significantly longer legs to it than that. And the spurge in LNG focused investments from shipping, but also from shore based infrastructure further supports that view. So what does that equate to in shipping? Well, just LNG demand uh, in itself should grow from a market of around 360 million tons today to around 550 million tons just by 2030. That's more than a 50% increase. And if you know that 1 million ton is the equivalent of vessel demand between 1.7 and two ships, dependent on whether you, you ship the cargoes to, to Europe or majority Asia, we see a significant increase in LNG vessel demand going forward. The current order book is not sufficient to meet that expected increase. And on top of that, we have the EEXI regulation affecting steam carriers, which further hampers the supply side. So we remain optimistic in the short term due to the, the price arbitrages between the geographies and the medium to long term, just on the back of the supply demand here and also the new regulations coming in to affect effective supply by the steamers. So we like what we see across the segment. On top of that, it's essentially three shipyards in the world that build these carriers. They're all in Korea and they're all build, busy building container ships. So we like how this is shaping up and, and therefore we expect the shipping market and especially the LNG shipping market to benefit from this going forward. All right, well, let's stay on that kind of the ordering side. New building orders peaked uh, a few years ago with the order book of 40%, right? Now this has fallen in recent years, but then it's grown back uh, to around 25% currently. So Paolo, uh, to you, how much of an impact will these ships be to maybe the expected earnings for vessels currently on the water uh, in the coming years? And then will the expected incremental, incremental liquefaction facilities uh, under construction be enough to offset the large number of new buildings? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you know, the, the season, there has been some kind of seasonality in, in the way the new buildings all that have been placed. If you look back in the past 10 years, the average number of energy carriers built every year was about 35. And there's about consensus, as Carl also mentioned, that, you know, there's really three yards there, uh, plus udons and why, 
And you're talking about, you know, between 60 and 70 vessels, the maximum per year that can be built. So the dynamics on, on the supply and demand is, one, you know, you have a relatively constrained capacity being built, which is now hacked away by the container vessels. Two, the fact that uh, there is a relative uncertainty on regulations coming forward. So although you see ordering coming back, you also see dynamics like new building prices have increased uh, significantly just in the past six months. There's uncertainty on what is the vessel fit for the future. And then you have, you know, the, the competition from other sectors all in the same yard, which somehow is going to tame down the overall development in, uh, in the next few years. If you combine that with one, you know, the combined growth that uh, on the liquefaction that, uh, you know, on the 10 years is, you know, correctly mentioned as 250, you know, really you take half of this, which is 125 million tons, you know, up to 2026, it's more than enough to justify the employment of whatever comes out from the supply side. Now, nothing really works like this. I mean, there's always ups and downs because, you know, the uh, typically projects happen uh, and, and they are eventually delayed while ships normally are delivered on time. So, you know, you do have, you know, variability within within the period. But I think in, if, you, if you take the medium to longer term, it's still a tight shipping market, even if you take into account the new building deliveries and the market dynamics. The other thing that really shows is, and you know, I think we can see the, in all the dynamics that you touched upon, is that the LNG infrastructure, given the fact that the world is thirsty of energy, are another area, not just the shipping side, that need a lot of attention. And you know, there's a there's a dilemma in you know, is really LNG you know, the fuel of the future, how is this perceived and how the other infrastructure are being built and financed to support the whole machine. That could be a constraint, you know, in addition to the new building supply that can uh, and might be, uh, you know, affect the, the overall market dynamic. Sure. And then with that, how many of you are participating in the cutter gas tender for LNG carriers? Well, I'll raise my hand. We are, but <laughs> I would just right. yeah. We're not. Mozart, so that that seems uh, Paulo Gaslog. Yeah, I know. You know, not Gaslog Partners directly. I mean, I, I talk on, on behalf of my uh, my current company. So, yes. Okay. Well, Oystein, I didn't get your response there. No, uh, no, uh, I I didn't. All right. My... So I guess <laughs> Richard, I'll ask you this then. Um, you know, it seems to be somewhat maybe of an industry problem uh, that when a large LNG supplier wants to increase capacity, they just require new buildings uh, to be built and, and delivered, right? Are there not enough secondhand LNG carriers to satisfy some of this demand, or does the cutter expansion require a certain type and size of vessel? I think, I think what uh, you're seeing today, um, and, and you'll see it in this tender, and I think in other tenders too, they'll be looking for new vessels and uh, primarily to be on the cutting edge of the technology curve. Um, the vessels will have to meet tightening um, environmental regulations. And so I think the um, future for most of these projects, since they wanna be there for 10 or 15 years is going to be looking to new vessels rather than take existing vessels for that kind of a period. Um, and, and, you know, these, these projects um, are going to be bringing on uh, significant volumes. And I think the existing fleet um, is facing a challenge. And certainly the steamships have been mentioned a couple of times now. Um, and what will be their trading ability over the next 10 years? And um, the, the emissions regulations are getting tighter. Um, it will lean into that fleet and, um, and probably over time, a uh, number of vessels will have to retire out of that fleet. So it's um, a combination of, for these, for these new projects, is a combination of what they see as far as what they're going to be producing, but also what they may be looking at as far as a, um, a, a gradual reduction in what are the existing vessels available to trade in the future, in the future regulations that we will see, environmental regulations. Okay. And then Oystein, maybe piggyback on that. How will the, the pending EEDI, EXI, CII, whatever else, uh, regulations impact the LNG carrier fleet? You know, obviously the other segments primarily use fuel oil as bunker fuel. LNG carriers utilize the boil-off gas for the most part. 
So for the LNG carrier fleet, be forced to either slow steam uh, after 2023 or, or forced to scrap kind of the older, smaller steamships. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, of course we get the EXI in 2023. So the ambition here is to reduce the CO2 emissions by or carbon intensity by 40% in 2030. Um, and baseline here is 2008. So that's just steamships. So the ba basically steamships are representing the baseline. And of course, reducing the steam, <laughs> reducing CO2 emissions on steamships by 40% is more or less impractical and impossible because, you know, of course you can slow down the speed. Uh, service speed is 19 and a half knots, but these, <laughs> these steamships, they are, they are not very efficient. And, you know, every time you increase the speed, you are increasing the consumption more. So, so of course, these ships are not running at 19 and a half knots, uh, you know, as you know, as normal. So usually, they, these ships are going much slower than that. So slowing down is not really they can't really slow down a lot more. But uh, but we do think there will be some engine power limitation on these ships. Maybe this would be at uh, 15 knots or whatever. But still. You know they are not able to meet this requirement regardless, and 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 putting a lot of you know capex on these ships, building relic system or something like that, or or, or changing the engine is not really cost efficient given the age of these ships. So we do think uh, scrapping will pick up. It's uh, going up to seven ships uh, this year. Usually scrapping is somewhere between zero to four ships, and we are uh, at seven already this uh, this year, and this is going to go up a lot. In, in the future and affect all the, all the steamships and and also it will be interesting to see you know those who have steamships on longer term contracts where there is a requirement to meet a service speed of 19 and a half knots and then there will be regulation uh, limiting this uh, speed and you know how are you complying with your time charter in such a, a situation so so we do think scrapping will be massively up and by 2030 i don't expect a lot of steamships around and that's that's quite a lot of ships which will leave the sector but but there are other ships also having uh, issues with the with the exxi you know the the biggest ship in the in the space the qmax and qplexes it's 45 of those ships they are not burning lng so they get a slap of 25 percent penalty just because they are not burning LNG so they also have to adapt so there will also probably be more ships at the yards doing improvements in order to meet the requirements which is also will take out some some ships capacity if I just, yeah, no, sir. go ahead Richard yeah and to add one thing and just uh, you know because we have a couple of steamships we we're following this pretty closely on um, I think what um, just a, a clarification I think IMO has come to the realization that slowing down LNG vessels isn't necessarily a good thing because the boil off is going to be there. So, um, and, and this is going to go into um, something that will be reviewed later by IAC as to how this is gonna be applied. But I, our general sense is that um, they recognize, IMO recognizes that um, you have to give um, the freedom of the ship to be able to burn the boil off even when there's excess we heavy weather and there's excess boil off or, um, when you're cooling down the vessel, various different points of just normal operation. Um, so it probably the, the um, part that really binds probably isn't going to be at the EXI when you're getting, whether you get a speed limit or not. I think more or less the vessels will be able to do it without a speed reduction. But as you go through into CII, that's where you'll see the cumulative effects of the actual efficiency mm -hmm. of the vessel being against it. And as this also becomes tighter and tighter uh, emissions requirements, you know that's where I think we'll see the the you know the gradual uh, obsolescence of the steam vessels taking place. That's fair. All right, I, one more I think, question. I think just I think we all agree that of course these uh, steamships they should be burning the natural boil off. Uh, you know, yes. venting it is not really a good solution. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. All right, I got one more question for the group uh, and then we'll get to some company specific questions. But obviously a lot of consolidation, M&A activity here in recent months, uh, GMLP acquired by New Fortress, Gaslog with BlackRock, Kogue LNG, Morgan Stanley, TGP recently with Stone Peak. So I guess to the group, uh, what has caused this maybe surge in activity in such a really short period of time? And why do you think maybe infrastructure or private equity funds in particular have been so interested in LNG shipping assets. Who wants to start there? 
I can start. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of reasons for this. Of course, if you look at the ship behind me, it's $200 million infrastructure. It's a, it's a floating pipeline. So it's a much more versatile pipeline than a fixed pipeline. So, uh, so of course, people in infrastructure, they can understand that. Um, and then, of course, it's the fact that the sector has been <laughs> immensely unpopular because uh, LNG uh, you know, market has been a bit tough the last couple of years. Uh, there's been a lot of, of companies maybe not delivering on, on their promises, uh, which has disappointed investors, and that has then been reflected in the pricing. And then once the pricing gets attractive enough, then people start uh, putting out their spreadsheets and calculating on NAV and SO2P and all this kind of stuff. And then they do see that there are value potential in this industry. And, and that's why, uh, and also it's an attractive industry because it's an industry which is growing. As, as Carl Fredrik mentioned, you know, it's, we are looking at three to 4% growth in this industry for the next uh, 20 years. And uh, you know, in shipping industry, that's not really a lot of, 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 of segments with that kind of growth. And not all, on, on only, you know, you have to go to like renewables to find that kind of growth. Of course, it's higher in renewable, but in the hydrocarbon business, this is where all the growth is. So, so I think it's a, a combination of these factors. Um, you know, attractive industry, attractive assets, uh, cheap valuation, and and good uh, growth prospects. I, I agree to all of those points. Well, the only thing I'd add is that you know I think most of these infrastructure companies, and, and I would call fairly smart money, uh, understand now that the discrepancy between oil, coal, and LNG, uh, or or the attributes of, of natural gas, they understand it's a necessary ingredient in order to build out the renewables, which they're all invested in as well. Uh, I think they see that the LNG returns are probably significantly better than those of the renewable returns, but they see, uh, as Eystein as alluded to, that this is part of the, the energy solution and a strong growth market. On top of that, we see that the capital markets, and we can debate for what reason, but have struggled to price any of these companies efficiently. Uh, and we are encouraged to see that uh, what we think is smart money is there to step in when the capital market is not there to price efficiently. Uh, so we're, we're encouraged to see the activity. Uh, and in general, we, we think it's, it's good for the industry as well. So uh, that, that's just a yeah. few more points to add to the debate. Richard, you had something to say too. Yeah, so I think and you know, some of the points have been touched on, but I think, um, you know, they, this is smart money. And I think that what they are seeing and, um, you know, the LNG in the industry, in, in the press has been getting sort of uh, knocked around a bit. Um, there's been this um, feeling that it is not as environmental as it could be um, because there's fugitive methane along the chain and so forth, which is, is difficult because it's a, a, a severe greenhouse gas. But um, I think what, you know, they, the smarter folks are looking at, um, they're seeing that the technology already exists to, to um, reduce or even eliminate um, the, this fugitive methane. Immediately, LNG is available. The infrastructure is there. It offers immediate um, savings and reductions in emissions for diesel technology, 20 to 25 percent for steam coal um, fired power plants, 50 percent. So there's room for LNG to step in. And it's also, as, as was mentioned earlier, it's a flexible fuel. It can react quickly to changes that are going on if, uh, as we move toward renewables and we have wind and, and sun, um, the LNG power plants can quickly ramp up, ramp down. And I think maybe what they're realizing is that LNG actually is a partner toward this whole um, transition to renewables. And uh, it's a complement. It's not a competitor. And I think that that thinking has now gotten into their minds. Uh, hopefully, it'll be more widely understood um, in the general population and around you know other, other areas. But I think that's part of what's really driving it. They see it as a um, not just a short-term transition, but a long-term transition fuel. Got it. No, that's fair. All right. I want to spend about three to four minutes um, on each of you and each of your companies. Um, and then we'll kind of go down the list here. So I guess starting with Golar, Carl, yesterday, you know, Golar announced the one-year time charter for your last remaining uh, spot exposed, I guess, LNG carrier. Does this help or maybe hurt your chances of spinning off the LNG carrier business? and any updated timeline for completing this spin. Yeah, no, you're right. So we fixed one of our ships uh, on a one-year time charter. Uh, that was the only ship we had available for the, in the spot market for Q4 of this year. 
Um, we have an increasing spot exposure as we build through next year with around 60% of the fleet available in the spot market for, for um, Q422. So we still have market exposure, but not for, for the fourth quarter. It's interesting because we were out uh, with the ship looking initially to fix her on a spot voyage. Uh, the feedback we got from the charters were a couple of guys willing to fix her for five years and a few for one year. Very few wanted to do spot because they all want to do duration. On the one hand, that tells you that if they're that aggressive, you should stay spot because they see the flows even better than we as owners do. But yeah. we think that if you can see, uh, I think we, we said sort of approximately what the rates are, but uh, close to, if not slightly above, uh, triple digit uh, rates, then, then it starts to become interesting for one year TC. And, and then we start to like the return of, of the business. And, and that was basically the, the evaluation that went into that. And that also removed some of the seasonality uh, for us as Golar. Uh, in terms of the spin, I think what, what we've been making very clear is that Golar has come a very long way in simplifying our business year to date by selling our subsidiaries um, GMLP and HIGO to New Fortress Energy, which has three, achieved three things for us. Uh, it crystallized uh, a book gain of more than half a billion dollars. We've simplified the group and we've never had a stronger balance sheet, now with around a billion dollars of cash and marketable securities. We like shipping and we like our FLNG exposure. In this environment, our incremental dollar is going to FLNG growth. I think we're good at shipping, but we're unique at FLNG. So we'll continue to focus our growth efforts in that front. In terms of the spin, we will remain opportunistic about uh, if and when we do it. Uh, we're at the level where we can do it by refinancing the debt non-recourse to Golar with very limited, if no cash uh, to be injected. Um, and we also see rates more than sustaining such a standalone vehicle. And to some extent, we're encouraged by uh, Gaslog, Hög, and TGP being taken private because there is an investor hunger there for people that are seeking LNG freight exposure. And we're also encouraged to see uh, Einstein's share price and also a Vilko LNG quadruple uh, from, from basically the trough levels to current levels. Uh, and we haven't seen the same effect on the Golar share price, despite the fact that we've been in the same market. We've done, we think, pretty smart moves on corporate transactions, and FLND is looking better than ever. So our puzzle and the reason why we still have it uh, as part of our agenda is that uh, we believe that the value that's been created across our platform is not reflected in the share price. Uh, we don't have any uh, rush to spin it off. We will remain opportunistic to do it when we believe that uh, the right transaction can be struck and we'll continue to evaluate uh, our alternatives. But uh, it's, it's uh, because we've already done a lot of simplification, we don't feel a rush to do it right now. And uh, we're quite keen to regain some of the cash lost uh, through the last sort of decade of poor LNG uh, carrier rates. And we believe this market is here to stay. Okay. Uh, I, I, you I, can I, get I, one minute from me because he has such a complicated business strategy and company to run. So I can manage with two minutes. <laughs> Got it. All right. Perfect. Yeah. He, 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 Carl maybe borrowed some of your time there. Um, I have two questions for all of you. So second question to Carl, a little quicker answer, which I appreciated the, the length of the first one. Um, with the recent debt refinancing, you know, you, you also mentioned some upside from Hilly Train 3 uh, for at least the first quarter by hedging the TTF. What do you do with that excess cash? I think you maybe just answered it, saying you're going to really focus on FLNG opportunities. Um, but secondly, is there an opportunity to maybe speed the ramp of Train 3 uh, in the first quarter in order to take advantage of the elevated LNG prices? So yeah, we just hedged uh, part of Q, uh, Q1 TTF exposure at $28, locking in $21.1 yep. $21 million in net income to Golar. Uh, for that quarter alone. Uh, Perenko has an option to declare um, 0.4 million tons of increased production or 16% production increase from uh, 23 to 26. And with this cash price, we think that's increasingly likely. Uh, they are drilling four wells uh, to prove up more gas. Uh, so we are very optimistic about the likelihood of that being declared. So yes, there is a chance it could ramp up quicker. The other part of your question about the financing, we just secured $682 million in new financing facilities 
that will mainly be used to uh, tackle the upcoming convertible bond in February and for FLNG growth. Yep, good answer. All right, thank you. Uh, Paolo, for Gaslog Partners, I guess, can you comment a little bit on the demand for steam vessels today compared to newer technologies? And then maybe going forward, uh, earlier in the panel, we talked a lot about uh, kind of maybe the viability of steamships in the new regulatory environment. Are all of them going to get converted to FSUs uh, as a result of those regulations, or, or will there be a, a place for them in the shipping market? Sure. Some telegraphic answers. So, the as as Austin mentioned, there's about you know 38 percent of the existing tonnage is steam vessels, and it, you know if you just do the math, it will really be impossible for the whole transition to take away the the steam vessels. So, one is matter of feasibility. Two is method there is actually quite difference between the first generation steams and last generation steams. And, 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 and that is also reflected in, in the market now. We've been able to secure you know, good employments on all the vessels. And actually we've seen uh, you know, term business being offered at very attractive terms for steam vessels as well. So in a tight market, the one that we believe is gonna be with us for the next uh, four or five years at least, you know, we, we actually don't see you know, lots of downside on steam vessels. It also depends where you are from. I and mean, we have relatively low depth on, on all these vessels and, and we have relatively high pace of depth replacement. So our break even and the way we can be profitable in the market don't need the rates that you have on new buildings. So, you know, the profitability you can still have on margin on these vessels is, 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 is actually quite nice. Um, with regards of, uh, you know, the regulations uh, Austin mentioned, you know, it is uh, it is there not much on the EXI, but more on the CII, like 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 Richard mentions. And and until now, you know, the rules are still not prescriptive. There's a carbon uh, cost that is going to be looming on you know the charters and us. You know, the question will be, you know, how much of this will you be able to pass to whatever customer of yours you will have, which is you know again a discussion that has happened in many other um, sectors as well. So. It's a complicated affair, which, you know, again, you know, I believe it's going to be sort of clarified in the next few years. Um, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, the position is still comfortable. Okay. Second question to you, I guess, in general, where does GLOP go from here? You know, following yesterday's sale lease back, uh, you increased a little bit of liquidity. Is that to further grow the fleet or what are the plans there? Yeah, we saw an interesting opportunity and we took it, you know, we, 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 we sold the vessels forward, but we, 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 we kept it on our, uh, with, a, with, an, uh, with an interesting bearable rate because we do believe the market is going to be really dynamic and interesting in the next few years. And, you know, we have extra liquidity, which we have uh, kept using to, uh, let's say, lower our break-evens. And that still remains our, our number one priority. Uh, we definitely are interested in growing the uh, the company again. We have a good platform to do that, and you know I don't want to use the the same words again, but we'll be optimistic. I mean, it's the name of the game here, um, and especially when it will be you know clearer what happens in in the regulatory world and what happens to you know this asset in you know asset intensive business of ours. Got it. Thank you for that, uh, Oystein. Over to Flex. Uh, which I, I, I am a fan of the, uh, the company name there. Anyway, I believe you currently have about 75% time charter, maybe 25% spot. Do you expect to continue to hold a significant portion of your fleet on, on the, the spot uh, cargoes? Or are you looking to lock those vessels in? Um, as Carl alluded to, the charter market is so strong. I, you know, I think we're agnostic. So what we have done in Flex, we invested $2.5 billion into the new uh, Maggie XDF ships and they're all on the water now so from 31st of May we had our last ship delivered so that means all our assets are generating income and uh, we've been ramping up uh, our dividends lately um, our coverage today is 70% of our ships are fixed on fixed higher charters we've done a lot of charters uh, this year because the market uh, as, as Carl mentioned that the term market has been very strong in interest for doing term 
rather than spot has been unique. Uh, we never really seen such a strong term market before. So we did uh, five ships with Chenier or four or five. We, uh, we do expect that will be five ships. And then we have done two more ships on, on, on fixed time charter rates uh, this year. One with uh, startup next year. Uh, so 70% of our income is fixed and then 30% is exposed to the spot market where we have three ships on variable time charter and, and one in the spot market. So we are basically, I guess, the only one with Omega XDF as our owner in the, in the spot market these days, which I think will be very profitable. Um, so um, going forward, I, I, you know, it really depends. If you know people are paying hundred thousand dollars per day on a trifuel, you know, it's a pretty good <laughs> economics. So if if people are um, showing us good enough numbers, we will probably fix more uh, on on longer term contracts. We have a pretty good earnings visibility you now for the next couple of years, but we do have ships available. Uh, one in the spot market and some ships uh, next year, which we can fix and further kind of lock in good returns. Uh, so, so I wouldn't rule it out. Mm, depends on the, okay. on, the, on the numbers. All right. And then uh, with that looking ahead, you, your fleet is fully delivered. Do you look to grow the fleet further or will the focus be on dividend increases, share repurchases? Yeah, I think uh, Carl mentioned, you know, the, the stocks quadruple, but, you know, we are still below NAV. Uh, we are back to, back to where we were uh, three years ago, October uh, 2018, we raised 300 million dollars to, to finance the expansion of the fleet, and we were about a billion dollars in the market cap. We are back there now, but in contrast to 2018, you know, we didn't have a lot of new buildings uh, uh, program. No, all the ships are delivered; they are generating income. So, so if you are looking at kind of replacement costs, our stock would probably be somewhere around 23 to 24 dollars. We are trading at around 19 dollars, so it doesn't really make right. sense for us to go out and and build new ships and building ships now on speculative basis is you know a bit expensive you know 205 210 million dollars for new building we bought our ships when they were costing like 180 185 so we, when you are doing speculative new building orders rule number one try to build them cheap you know if you're doing speculatively and expensive then you're going to be have a hard time making a good return on your money yeah no that's fair um, all right, Richard, we'll finish with you and Moran before we get to the lightning round. Um, so with that, Moran has a very large, diverse fleet. How do you balance your kind of time charter employment versus spot? We um, are fortunate, I guess, I will say, in, in having a, a fairly strong base of uh, time charter commitment. So, so really, there's a strong foundation there. Um, the vessels will run out, roll out uh, at various times uh, from those tra time charters. Um, but I think the, the fundamental driver is uh, sort of opportunity driven. And, um, you know, the Angelus's family has been good at um, trying to maximize the value of the vessels. Um, generally, I would say favoring term commitment when it's available, but not driven to do that. Um, and if there's good opportunity in the short term, the, you know, clearly we'll stay there and, and continue in that area. But I, I think, um, you know, as I say, the, the, feeling is to try to um, keep a good portion of the fleet under some term contracts to keep the stability there in the organization. Um, and that's the way it's been run. And I think that's the way it will continue. Okay. And then you also have a, a handful of new buildings on order. Um, how do you make that decision between ordering new builds versus growth through secondhand vessels? I think the, the, it comes back to sort of the philosophy of the Angel Cusas family and, um, and Maria now is, is uh, applying that um, and, and has taken over in that role. And uh, it is that um, they want to control uh, the product that they provide to the charters and the service they provide. And um, so fundamental to that is to have a ship that they um, have confidence in and that really comes down to specking their own designs. And that's true really across also the tankers and the dry side. So the, again, the, the interest is to um, order the ships that um, we like with our specs uh, to go forward, even on a speculative basis and offer those into the market uh, rather than to buy secondhand. There have been a few secondhand purchases, um, one uh, on the LNG side, but that was before delivery of a vessel. And so that's not exactly secondhand. Um, and uh, some, uh, a few, and really just a handful on, on either the dryer or the uh, tanker side. 
Um, and it comes back to this fundamental philosophy. They want to control the product that they offer to the, and the service they offer to the charters. And that starts with having a fundamentally good vessel. Got it. No, that's fair. All right, we have uh, six minutes to go. So let's get to the lightning round. Um, starting with you, Carl, um, then we'll go down the list here. One word answer is pretty much all we need. Your expectation for LNG carrier ton mile demand growth in 2022. Everyone knows 21 is going to be kind of a catch up year, inventory, restocking, all of these other things. 2022 ton mile demand growth, LNG shipping. Carl. Six to seven percent. Thank you. Paolo. 16%. One six. All right. Um, Oystein? I, I've been in seven to eight percent. I'm more in line with Carl Fredrik. <laughs> volume oh, growth will fair. be like 20 million tons next year, which is five percent. And then you will have some added benefit, probably some uh, volume from US. Yep. That's fair. Uh, high single digits. Richard, what do you think? Um, I'm at six percent. So, you know, at the lower. We got a three in line and a, and a very bullish outlier. It's fine. Uh, Paolo, let's go to fleet growth percentage for the LNG carrier fleet next year. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the order book today and coming up, it's really between four and five percent. Okay. Um, let's go, uh, Oisin. Uh, it's four percent, 25 ships. It's 575 ships on the water. That's four percent. Okay, Richard. I was going to go higher. I was going to go about 10%. I think there's room to, to increase. I think the, the ships are needed. Now, do you think the ships get accelerated in terms of delivery or what's your variance there between the other guys, 5% and your 10%? Well, I'm, I'm looking at new orders. I mean, they, what's already on the books is on the books and I, that isn't going to change and there's no way to you know increase that. So this is what I'm looking at as far as what new orders will be. So, and, okay. I, and I just think that there's a, a need for the vessels. And I think also people will be looking at what's going to be happening on retiring some of the steamships to help drive that. Okay. And Carl, fleet growth next year in terms of deliveries? Just around 5%. It depends on which data set you use. I have 32 ships versus a fleet on the water end of the air at 587. But some of those include FSRU, so 5%. Okay, fair. All right, um, starting with you, Oystein. Average TFDE rate peak this winter. I know we saw maybe some headlines for 250, 300,000 uh, in January, but I think that was very, uh, maybe a one-off cargo. So let's say for a decent amount of cargoes, um, give me like a two or three week peak for TFDE. I was there in uh, the spring and the first time ever I was the most bearish guy because I was uh, guessing 153,000 at that time for dry fuel rates. Uh, Tony Lurison, he said 200,000, and uh, damn it, I think Tony Lurison will be right. All right, all right, 200. Um, Richard, what do you think here? Yeah, I would agree with that. I was thinking at 250 for a peak peak, but you're saying two to three weeks, that'll probably be 200, somewhere in that zone. All right, um, Carl? I agree. Plus minus 250, I'll just add one point on that. It's very, very few ships available from independent owners. Most are relets. Actually, right now, the way we calculate, the after we fixed our ship and announced that yesterday, the only independent ownership is for Einstein. So it depends how good Einstein is to push the price here, but he doesn't own TFDEs either. Uh, but if, if you're just at, I think, 250 to 300. Then. Two to 250, maybe that one year wasn't the best decision yesterday, Carl, but that's but okay. It, but it's a very um, big difference between a 30-day fixture and a 365-day fixture, Randy. <laughs> I, I noted, noted. Uh, Paolo? Yeah, I think we're going to be at the end of those, those figures. I think I concur with the group this time. Wow. All right. Should be exciting times to look forward. Last question. Um, this has been an interesting one. A five-year-old, 160,000, let's call it kind of baseline TFDE, is currently valued at 145, maybe $150 million. It's really been that way for over a year, right? It's kind of been stuck at that level. I guess, first, why hasn't there been any change? And then second, what do you think that value will be a year from now uh, for a five-year-old TFDE? Richard, we'll start with you on this one. Well, I think there hasn't been any change. It really hasn't been many sales either. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of a, there's not many data points out to, to um, decide one way or another whether it's the right, the right price. 
Um, you know, I think actually, you know, looking just one year ahead, maybe they won't change again, actually. But uh, I think going forward a bit, as, again, depending on what's going to happen on these IMO regulations and all the rest, those, those vessels may increase in value a bit uh, if they can get contracts uh, because they're going to be around for a period that will justify that. Okay. Carl? I, I agree with Richard. There's no secondhand tonnage. So the 145 you referred to is the broker quote. That's set from a new depreciated new building price. Think if you turn it around and look at implied value of where the market has priced these ships, it was far less than 145. As I said, Flex and Avilco is now quadrupled in price. And now 145 is also where the capital market say they're actually saying a bit higher, 150. So I would strongly argue that it has changed. Um, but not what the broker quotes say, but what the stock market said the implied value is. And I would furthermore agree with Richard that the price risk is on the upside, not on the downside for a TFD. I would, the opposite for steamers there, I think it's downside risk for TFD and Megis. I think it's ups, upside risk. Okay. Paulo and then Oystein, uh, last words here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the TFDs are actually quite flexible vessels. If you look at the technology that will be available, many of which is actually relatively pluggable into these vessels. And it's industrial shipping here. So you're looking at you know, the lifetime value of the vessels and what you can actually earn in, in, a, in a relatively long period of time. So I believe that figure is, is you know, a solid one. And, uh, you know, it, as I said, you know, it really is up to your, the ability that you have in operating that. Way. So, yeah, that figure. Okay. Oystein, last answer. Right. So, uh, prices so going 145. I agree with everything Coldfather says. You know, uh, broker quotes have been lazy because there was actually four ships being sold last year. It was these Cardiff ships. Although that was a really, really messy transaction, but the price there was well below 100. So I, I think it's, uh, it's around 145, 150. Yeah, yeah it's very, a uh, very opaque market, um, especially compared to drywall tankers, even container ships now with very liquid S&P activity. But thank you all again for all the insight there. Um, last year was certainly a, a exciting uh, winter for LNG shipping. This year's shaping up to be even more exciting. So we will be uh, watching your names closely. Thank you again. Thank you, Nicholas. Sorry for taking an extra two minutes there. No worries. And thank you very much to everybody. It's been such a dynamic discussion. Thank you. Thank you uh, really very much. Thank you. Okay, thank, you. thank you. Thank you.